I thank you for this opportunity. As I told the first service, I've not really ever spoken at a different church than my own. So it is such a pleasure and such a gift to me. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about something that has been on my heart so heavy. And maybe many of you have felt this same burden um, after the pandemic especially, being separated. And so that is this theme of unity. And so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to be reading verse 16 and 17 to begin. And so I encourage you, we'll go to several different scriptures if you have your Bible, if you follow, want to follow along, or if it's on your phone or your device. I just encourage you to come along on this journey with us. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17 says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. We want to hang on to that because we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. Let's just pray for a moment. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. I pray now that you open our hearts and our minds. I pray that the words spoken are yours and that we hear you. God, all eyes are on you. And we are looking for your message and the words you have for us today, however that comes to us, Father. May it go with us when we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul addresses unity in both of his letters to the Corinthians that we have in our Bible. And we're going to look through several verses in, in both of those. And so today we're going to talk about specifically why Paul chose this word temple. Why he chose the word temple when he was writing this letter to the Corinthians. First, we know that the temple is the dwelling place of God. And so Paul's in, in Paul's imagery, he's seeing the church and he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, you are the dwelling place of God. A couple things we need to know about the church at Corinth, though. It was not one body gathered as we are right now today. It was a series of house churches. Uh, many of you may have experienced that during the pandemic where you met with maybe a smaller group for worship. And so we, we may have experienced some of that. And in fact, in many areas, that is how the church is growing is through these house churches. But one thing that happened in that time was that it made unity somewhat difficult. As these Christians tried to, to walk their faith out in the world... They would, they would talk about them with this smaller group. But oftentimes as they got together, they may have come up with different answers. Anybody ever experienced that? Right? And so Paul is writing this letter, and, and he knows that unity is challenging. They were largely from a Gentile background. Yes, there were Jewish Christians in this church. But many were from a pagan background, and so they had many little G gods, and they knew of many temples, and they would have, their mind would have gone to that. But in Paul's mind, he's seeing one God, one temple, and the one place that God chose to dwell. This can only mean to us what Paul intended it to mean to the Corinthians. We can't make it mean what we want. So we want to start right there, knowing what Paul 
was thinking in his mind, and he uses this word naos. That's the Greek word, naos. And it means specifically the intersection of the temple, the holy of holies. What do we know about that? It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? The mercy seat. And it was this symbol of, of the faith and the worldview of Judaism. See, their relationship with God, God intended for it to completely shape their view of the world. And that's where Paul's mind was. He chose the temple because he saw it as an image of the place where heaven and earth come together. Think about that. That's what we are today. Kind of takes your breath, doesn't it? The letter of 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter, interestingly. Um, and the letter of 2 Corinthians is the fourth, most scholars believe. And in this letter, he's writing to these Christians that, like I said, are trying to learn to walk their faith. And so the theme of this letter is really the life of the church in the world. How you, church, are living in the world, you church at Corinth. That's what Paul's writing. And it, you'll see, if you read the whole book, you'll see that he answers some questions. You can tell that, that, the question, that he's responding to something. But he talks about humility and boasting. He answers questions about marriage, church discipline. He gives a very stern warning against idolatry. He talks about the Lord's Supper and love and resurrection. Those are very familiar scriptures that we literally use as part of our worship, right? And so Paul was very concerned with how the church was living in the world. When they accepted Jesus as their Savior, when they became Christians, they knew that their faith was supposed to shape them, but they weren't exactly sure what that meant. And so if we look at chapter 10, leave something here in chapter 3 because we're going to come back, and we can kind of see an example of some of the things that they were struggling with. In chapter 10, Paul says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. And he says, now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. What we see here is what we know today about us. The church is not a community of people who have conquered evil church is a community of people that are struggling against it every day. It's not something we've accomplished. And so Paul goes on and he warns them about becoming idolaters, committing sexual immorality. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. Here's a good one and don't complain. There's a tough one. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Here's our verse. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. What we need to understand here is Paul was addressing some very specific things that were happening with this church. Many of these believers, they were Christian believers. They accepted the gospel of Christ, and yet they were struggling with being separate from the world 
They believed that they could continue to participate in pagan religious, religious rituals. And that they were strong enough to not compromise their faith. What's Paul telling them there? Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. They were flirting with the world. No one is strong enough to live like the world without compromising their faith. And that's what Paul's telling them. He says this beautiful gift of grace that you accepted is necessary because judgment is certain. And so if we flip back to chapter 3, we see that he talks about this new life in Christ. So he has, he has told them as this letter goes through, this is what it's supposed to be like. And then he pops in with this warning, and it's very stern warning about idolatry there. And so if we look at verses 5 through 9, um, if we start at the beginning, Paul says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere human beings? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans, they were divided. They were struggling with division. Paul tells them here, and this applies to us, immaturity and division in our churches makes the church look like the world. And he's trying to tell them, don't do this. Don't do this. And so he goes on and he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He's pointing to God. Look, don't look at me. Look at God. That's what he's telling them. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Keep an eye on that word. Because that's where we're going to end up. They're one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is building one spiritual community. And that's what he's telling them. Even though you're meeting separately, you're one spiritual community. And that's what God is doing in you. In verses 10 and 11, he says that that community has one foundation. According to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. He says there's only one foundation. It's Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of him. And we've already read in our focus scripture, he says in verse 16, don't you yourselves know, and that is plural. Okay, he's talking very clearly to the church. You are the temple of God, the spirit of God. There's one spirit that unites the body of Christ. And so Paul is trying to remind them of who you are. And he's used this word temple very intentionally. You are where heaven meets earth. And when you come together, it's special. It's different, and it matters. The church is one community built on one foundation, united by one Holy Spirit. 
And together the church lives under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge him and all that he has done. We acknowledge God as creator. Greek theologian John Ziziulo says it this way, we have the church only when we have community. Think on that for a little bit. It's an interesting thought. And then we see when we get to the letter of 2 Corinthians that a lot of these struggles that they had, they may have made the Corinthians ripe for a false gospel. Because by the time Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians, that is what had happened. His opponents came in and they were preaching a health and wealth gospel. And they were basically saying, Paul's not really an apostle because he's suffering. If, if you're really an apostle, if you're really a believer, you're going to receive all of these blessings. And so, of course, they were speaking a language that the Corinthians wanted to hear, right? We all do. We all get tempted toward that. And we see in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of these people, though, very clearly. Because, see, in this, in this letter, he's talking about the life of the world in the church. The world has now come into the church and has pulled the people's hearts away from the one true gospel. They were teaching a Jesus and, Jesus and wealth, Jesus and health, Jesus and these spiritual experiences. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. Here's who they really are in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Very, very clear, isn't that? For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Paul is being very clear. And he goes on to say, He's going to tell them to separate from the believers and we're going to, from unbelievers, and we'll see that back in chapter 6. But here in verses 12 through 15, Paul says, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. He says, in order to deny an opportunity, this is verse 12, to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan disguises disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no great surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. And this is really important. Anything that compromises the gospel within the church will contaminate the lives of the people of God. We have got to hold firm to that because Satan wants to divide us. He wants to get our eyes off of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. Exactly. So we can take a warning from that. And so in chapter 6, I mentioned that he's going to say, set yourselves apart. In chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians, don't become partners with those who do not believe. Your translation may say yoked. 
Paul's saying, be separate. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Paul's comparing these things, light and dark, Satan and Christ. You have to understand these are unbelievers. He is very clear that they have led you wrong. Return to Jesus. Anytime anyone says Jesus and church, I'm going to warn you. If it's Jesus and, you need to step back. And always go back to his word. Always take it to him. Is this true? And that's where the Corinthians got lost. And we need to ask ourselves, are we allowing anything else to shape us more than Jesus? And that is individual, but it's all of us as we come together and we seek to worship God. And so Paul is talking about this yoke and he's in, the, in, his, in the original language, he's basically saying it's like taking two different kinds of animals, an ox and a donkey, and putting them under the same yoke and expecting them to plow your field. They have different natures. They have different purposes. Paul is saying you can't get there from here. And so we need to remember that we are a new creation. We see that in Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective. Yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And so Paul begins to tell them, this is how you should live. And we saw that word one. Paul also is very clear in Philippians about how we should live as Christians. And he says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he talks about standing in one accord, standing in one spirit, contending for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're about, church. That's who we are. And that word one is what we want to look at because that's our word for unity. I had to look at it twice thinking, ah, one. If you dig in, it means one as opposed to a division in parts. When Paul uses that word one, he's bringing the parts together. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of the church and over and over and over he uses the same word. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body. So also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. And then in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and individual members of it. Paul's talking about our unity in diversity. We don't come together to be all the same. That's not the goal. Our diversity doesn't cancel our unity, but it becomes an expression of it. When we all come together, we bring something different to the body of Christ. And we need everyone. Just one person missing and it looks different. 
And so Paul is saying you're all individuals, but you come together as one. Standing firm as one, as he says in Philippians. And what speaks so clearly of this, unity is not the goal. Unity itself is not the goal. So don't misunderstand me. In John chapter 17, Jesus is heading to the cross. And he takes a moment to pray. Think about that quiet room. Candlelit maybe. Verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So he begins praying for himself, just submitting himself to Jesus. And then he goes on and he prays for his disciples. And here in verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one. And it gets better as we are one. Jesus is very clear. And then in verse 20, he begins his prayer and spends some time in this prayer. It is incredibly beautiful. And it's actually what is on the one sheet as the main scripture to read. I encourage you to read the entire prayer. But in verse 20, Jesus says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity is not the goal. Unity is the way the world sees Jesus in the church. That's a tough one sometimes, isn't it? It's hard. The enemy is digging the trenches super deep between us. He's making sure that we understand you don't think the same way that they do. You don't feel the same way that they do. Something I tell our church all the time, we're better together. We're better together. We're different together because we all bring something different. Unity is not the goal. Unity is the way the world sees Jesus. Unity is a channel. It's an instrument that can be used for God's purposes. And so, church, we have to know who we are. Our identity is in Christ. We have to always remember that. That brings all of us together. That one foundation, that one community. And as a church, what did Paul say at the beginning of Corinthians in our focus verse? The temple of God is holy, right? And that is what you are. Holiness should define us. And for anyone that that scares, 
Holiness does not come through your willpower. It is not what you do. It comes through our worship. It comes when we stand before him and we say, God, I have nothing, but I give you everything. It is acknowledging him, acknowledging our need for Jesus. That is where our holiness comes from. We've got to quit trying so hard and worship. And i got to tell you, I, I, I was here when they were practicing this morning, but during worship, I absolutely love worshiping with you all. It is just absolutely wonderful. I have been here before to worship. And literally, God took my breath because I did not know that open the eyes of your heart was one of the songs. I've prayed and I've asked God, is this the right message? Am I the right person? All of these things. I mean, nerves get all of us, right? And for that second, God took my breath. Because that song took me back to when he literally called me in Nicaragua in a worship service. I didn't know. There was no audible words and I didn't get a paper with directions on it. I just started walking in a different direction. Our worship matters. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. We're identified by our worship. We're connected by the gospel. We see that in, in 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about being led astray by a different gospel. We are united in the gospel. We're connected. And we're focused. We want to exalt God in all we do. We want to be God-centered so that we don't allow the things of the world to divide us. In 1 Corinthians, in the very beginning, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters... That all of you agree in what you say. That there be no divisions among you. And that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. we got to hang on to those things that hold us together. I'm not saying that we don't want to work through the tensions and wrestle with those really hard questions together. Because we do. But we have to find a way through it together. Unity. It's not the goal. Our final point is unity is the process that God uses to shape his church. To shape his people. One thing that Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me was for us to be one. He knew above all else that is what we needed. We need each other. In fact, I'd say we need each other more than ever before. And so as we close, let's go back to Paul's word, the temple. We, the church, are the place where heaven meets earth. We're one community built on one foundation that is Jesus, connected by one Holy Spirit. We don't come together to try to be like everyone else. We come together and allow our differences, our diversity to be expressed through us and through our unity. And we can't forget that unity is the way the world sees Jesus. 
man, that should convict us. I don't know about you, but I think the world really needs Jesus. And so my question for you today is, are you in Christ? If you're not, we'll have a time of response, and there's no better time. This unity comes only through Christ. He said over and over, Jesus is what holds you together. Don't be misled. So the unity is found when you know Christ and accept him as Lord. When you say, Jesus, I can't do it alone. I need you. I'm broken and I'm sinful and I need you. But for for those of us that are Christian that have accepted Jesus... Here's the question for you this week. It's a question for me, and don't think that this doesn't speak to me because it does. Am I allowing anything to shape me more than Jesus? Because individually we bring those things in. Remember anything? Anything that we bring in, anything that compromises the gospel. Where are we not living the gospel? Because it will contaminate us. And we're here to walk with each other, to make each other stronger so that we can do that. And our worship is how we get there. So are we allowing anything to shape us more, church, than Jesus?